Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Hello. I like that. that. That happens a couple of times when I've been doing these shows, and I've always enjoyed it. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'll be your host this evening. I'm very pleased that you can all join me down here at the Leicester Square Theatre. Tonight we will have an interval, but feel free to buy booze at any point during the night. People won't be offended. Uh, but it is quite expensive, so you might want to weigh that up. Uh, this is our big finale, the last of five shows that we've done down here. It's been a great space for tragedy, although the M&M shop up on Leicester Square, I think is probably the best venue for tragedy in the, in the area. The tragedy will live on. We'll be taking a break after this, which I'm looking forward to, but the podcasts from this night will continue through June, maybe even beyond that, and I hope to do occasional podcast extras over the coming months. But the big plan currently is to try and take this show up to Edinburgh in 2013, possibly as part of the Free Fringe. And so I'll be working on making that happen between now and then. Something that I'll have a little bit more room in my life for will be to work on a music project that I'm working up at the moment called A Room Full of Friends. We're going to start the night with that project. So please, please welcome to the stage, Asher. for the first act we're sitting down and supposed to be standing up uh, I hope you'll forgive us for that wow breaking the chair as well um, so this is oh, and, the, and the clipboard so this is the first of our three songs they're, uh, they're sad songs about imagined relationships and uh, this first one uh, is called Bones and it's about two people who love each other staring deep into each other's eyes and realising that their relationship isn't going to work Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. Hopefully it's not a metaphor for this project. Okay. I am looking into your eyes, trying to pull something out. Something that I don't
a song uh, that was getting its first public hearing here. Yeah. We encourage people to create new things for this show and not to be afraid to try new material. Uh, so I thought I would take the lead and set an example. Next up, we have some stand-up uh, stand <laughs> from James Russ. Uh, he's also put together something new for tonight. James runs Fat Kitten Improv uh, that you can find on the webs at www.fatkitten.com. Fatkittenimprov.com. You're right. You can read better from there. Uh, and hosts the monthly comedy night, Better Living Through Comedy. The next one is on the 12th of June at 8pm at the Green Note in Camden. And it's half the price of this night too, so why not, why not go to that? Welcome James to the stage! <laughs> I'm not enjoying this either. It's, we just got to get it over with. And we'll be fine. Right, good. This is superb. Thank you very much for getting Village, and this was the 10th century, I would be terrified, but also, so oh, it's quite, quite excited. I would, I'm balanced, I would. Here we are, sorry. This is essential, this is doing. Hello, everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am uh, James Ross. I'm a man with 99 problems, but a lot of named one. <laughs> I like that. They say open with your best joke. I did. Whoops. Part of the tragedy of comedy. Laughter is like a social mechanism. So people don't really laugh unless they like you. So most of the battle with any gig is getting the audience to actually like you in the first place. It's much like uh, any sort of relationship at all. I much like button love or anything like that. So I'm, um, I would try and get the entire audience to love me, but that would be uh, a uh, time-consuming. Uh, be uh, slutty uh, and see like effort. So I'm gonna focus on one person. I'm gonna focus on you. I'm gonna make you love me. Why won't you love me? What's your name? But I already love you. Oh. <laughs> thank, thank you for undercutting my material in the most charming and heartwarming way imaginable. I'm fine with that. I'm just moving on now. That's fine by me. Anyway, um, yes. Ah, doing it. Yeah. So the part of um, the general tragedy that is my life, ladies and gentlemen, I do enjoy. I do enjoy a glass of wine. Uh, the fact the glass is the shape of a 75 centimetre bottle is neither here nor there. Still, <laughs> I still enjoy it a bit, and then I enjoy it a bit more. You may be asking why I can get away with such a fabulous moustache. What is it like carrying the burden of a moustache like this? You look at this moustache and you think, if I were to be recasting the Pringles adverts in a much more naturalistic light, that is the face I would go for. That is the, the face that would launch a thousand pop caps. Yes. There we are, you might well be asking yourself, and what it's like to have this moustache. There are three places in the world it is possible to have this moustache, and they are Shoreditch, uh, Mexico, and Pakistan. I'm from none of these places. <laughs> it's enormously difficult. And there are various other things that people ask me, moustache, what, what is it like kissing a man with a moustache? Like, I don't know, I'm heterosexual, it's difficult. Uh, why don't you find out? And then they will, then they will kiss me, and uh, we will uh, engage. And if they have uh, some, uh, you know, fluff about their lips, then uh, we will be prized together, like um, erotic Velcro. And as we sort of disengage, I'll be like, how was that? And they'll turn to me and they'll say, ah, no, it's, it, was a, it was a magical experience. I enjoyed that enormously. It was much like um, going down on a lady with a vagina shaped like a face. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Testing the level of the room there. 
worked out quite nicely. Um, mass murder, there's an appropriately tragic topic. Um, now, this is the thing, we, um, when we're on public transport, we all shy away from uh, people who look a bit funny, the people who are wearing the sort of um, uh, filthy, encrusted Macintoshes, the people who are the noises like the mogwai being fed after midnight. Those are people we tend to avoid. But if there's anything that the Anders Brevik murders have taught us is that we must now be extremely suspicious of attractive people. That's how, he, that's how he slipped under the radar, by being tall, blonde and handsome, because he triggered nobody's weirdo radar. So now it is absolutely necessary to be extremely suspicious of all attractive people, because any one of them could be a big, nasty murderer. You could be a murderer, madam. You could be a murderer. You could be a murderer, madam. Or you, sir. It could be any one of us. Any single person in this room is above the threshold required of physical attractiveness to be a murderer. <laughs> could even be me. So, Jim, I, I could potentially kill you. That potential, that potential does exist. So there we go. I have, I've just killed the atmosphere. That's enough. <laughs> that is enough. So I've split up my girlfriend, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, <laughs> Tiny round of applause. That's okay, because it uh, accompanies the tiny little violin uh, concerto that I play on. Very small violin. Yes, I spoke my girlfriend, but um, you know, at least I am actually physically capable of facially separating from somebody. Unlike this uh, couple that I saw on the tube the other day, because I uh, live in London, and so use the tube. That's how it works. And there was this couple, and um, they were there, and they were, they were kissing very passionately. I thought, ah, oh, that's a sweet and romantic thing. Isn't that delightful? And they were sort of very passionately at it. And then I sort of, I kind of I looked up from um, you know, where they were uh, locked lip to lip, and I saw their eyes, and I thought, this is, this is unusual and peculiar. Because although the, the, the bottom halves of their faces were engaged with each other quite enthusiastic, their eyes, their eyes were not. Their eyes were staring off at 90 degree angles. So it was all that. <laughs> like looking around the carriage, and it's like, this isn't Saudi Arabia, the morality police are not after you. And it's like they were looking out for snipers, and they were sort of really busy, looking more and more, and it was like watching two frenzied squid kind of vaguely assault each other. And I, uh, it was, no, it wasn't even like a live squid, it was like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, this is an utterly horrifying um, YouTube clip of um, a squid that has had its head cut off and it is having the nerves stimulated by having soy sauce poured on it because the, um, the salt in the soy sauce vaguely stimulates the receptors that still remain alive within it so it's sort of a and it was like that from the nose down that's what it was like, they were using the, the medium of like dead soy squid to express their affection for each other whilst they're looking around. And I was like, can they, can, like, why are they doing this? Are they actually like, looking around because it's dangerous? You know, is, it, is, this, is it like speed? You know, if they go below 50 rotations of a tongue per minute, does the train blow up? Is this a serious issue? And I'm just like, no, please, please don't make this like speed because speed suffered from the most enormous franchise inflation and it was awful. Because they start off with the bus and that was quite a compelling film. Don't go below 50 miles an hour, the bus blows up. And then they go, ah, oh, fine, well, let's go for a, a motorboat. And it's like, ah, oh, it's not a motorboat, it's a big yacht. It's a yacht. It goes under 50 knots or whatever. Then it blows up to, oh, fine, just stop, stop inflating the franchise. Because at this point, we've got, like, you know, kissing on the tube. And if it goes any further than that, they'll be fingering on a hovercraft. And before you know it, there's buggery on a Zeppelin. And nobody's pleased with that, except for uh, Captain, uh, Captain Nikolai Tesla of the HMS uh, thingamie of the spaceship Sky Captain. Hurrah! Three cheers. I fucked that bit up really, really bad. <laughs> All of it. Most of it, I improvise things, and it's better. Is it time for me to leave, Dave? Am I, it's time for me to leave. It is. Oh, can, I, can, I, can I finish on one? I've got a poem. All right. 
It's a very swift poem. It's the only poem I ever wrote, ladies and gentlemen. This was uh, when I was 17, and I was trying to impress a lady. Uh, and she was one of these sort of uh, Jane Austen obsessive, terribly romantic. Uh, I, I'm reading uh, English literature and English language today. Uh, with sort of long, with sort of very pale skin, very beautiful English rose. Uh. And so I impressed her with my great sensitivity by writing uh, this uh, poem. And by poem, I do mean limerick. So please, let's <laughs> put yourselves in mind of this uh, blushing, beautiful uh, summer breeze, summer dresses, skipping through a meadow, the dandelions wafting breeze. Um, prepare yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. There once was a man from South Ealing whose penis reached up to the ceiling. When fiddling in pockets, it lodged in light sockets, and now he's got a warm, fuzzy feeling. Bum! <laughs> Welcome back to the, the Stand Up Tragedy stage, a man called Radcliffe Royds, who Woo! has been here before. Uh, the, last, the last time he didn't have quite enough time to tell his story, so he's back to do it again. I first met him at Spark London, which you can find at www.sparklondon.com. Welcome, Rad, to the stage. He's right here. I am tall, blonde and handsome, and I'm not a murderer. I just want to make that clear after the last act. Um, and my story, I'm afraid, is going to lower the tone very early on in the evening. Because um, mine is a tale of tragedy. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of um, the end of my second marriage. The tragedy started at the beginning of my second marriage, but I, I saw it through to the end. I, I've had several wives, two of them are my own now. <laughs> this particular night, cast your minds back, it's the year 2001, I think it was. It was a late July evening. I was returning from Bournemouth, where I'd been on a minor cavort with friends, and I came back to my lovely house in Clapham. Some of you will know Clapper. And I put my key in the lock and it didn't turn. I tried it to the left, and I tried it to the right. And then I, I banged, as you do. <laughs> and I heard a whimpering on the stairs. And because I'm quite posh, obviously, I, <laughs> I have a letterbox. <laughs> so I'm now negotiating. It's the second time I've been on my knees to this woman. The first time got me into trouble in the first place, and the second time, as I negotiate the end of my marriage through a letterbox, um, left me homeless. It left me wifeless, which turned out to be quite a good thing, um, and completely stuck. It was midnight, it was a Sunday night, and I did what any self-respecting person does, and I rang up a mate, and I said, oh, it's a disaster, I've been thrown out, I can't go home. And he was really nice, and he said, just come around, just come over. And I arrived, and he greeted me at the door, uh, gave me a huge hug, and then his girlfriend from behind him appeared with a large tray of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Within an hour, I found my situation that improved dramatically. <laughs> and I didn't give a shit about anything. And I took to this sort of solution like a duck takes to water, as people do. But what I didn't realise was that quite how far down this was going to take me. And the reason, funnily enough, that 
uh, Dave asks me to come to talk to you here is that I, I ended up living just around the corner from here, but not in quite the way or in the circumstances to which I was used. So having started this maniacal drug game, <coughs> crack cocaine, on heroin, on all these things, I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> from the back, you're probably thinking mid to late 30s. <laughs> You'd be wrong. I'm 24, it's been a hard life. <laughs> but I got, I, just, I got sucked in hugely, and I'd ripped off my friend, I'd ripped off all my other friends, my ex-wife, pending as she turned out to be, had alerted the entire world, my parents and everybody like that. Don't speak to him, he's gone mad. I was living, I was living in my car at this point. Um, and uh, so I had a totally carpeted estate, is one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and I just could not stop, I just could not stop. And then it, I got lower and lower, and eventually I got so desperate I decided to ring my parents. <laughs> now, my mother is the sort of woman that brushes her hair to answer the telephone. <laughs> and I rang up and I said, Hi, Mum, how would it be if I came home for a few days? And she says, Oh, no, dear, our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> she put the phone straight down. I luckily, through my connections, with all these nefarious chemicals that I was now taking, had met a really amazing guy called Delroy. <laughs> well, actually, as he calls him Delroy. And Delroy had a spiderweb tattoo across half his face, and he had trousers made out of beer mats, and he was a hell of an operator just up the road in, in Soho, and he taught me this rather sort of clueless, posh kid who was sort of sinking into, into the morass, how to support a drug habit in the West End. <coughs> and you did that by stealing chicken wings and meat out of Sainsbury's, basically. <laughs> Occasionally Asda, every little helps. <laughs> but I, I, actually, you're listening to the man, I got done for the most well-traveled leg of lamb in Britain. They put a tracking device in a leg of lamb. <laughs> well, I mean, really. If you, uh, how, how many people, hands up anyone's been to jail here? <laughs> Don't I feel lonely? <laughs> well, I have. Now, when you go to jail, you kind of want to have something with a shotgun or Brinks mat or, you know, something with a bit of meat to it. Well, I say meat. When you go in and they say, what are you in for? Oh, there you go, <laughs> You know humiliation. <laughs> Cutting a very long story short, Delroy and I, what we did was we would go into Sainsbury's and we'd just fill up our bags with, with, with meat. And I actually was performing quite a useful social function. So for those of you who think I'm a thoroughly dis honest, distasteful person, you'd be right, but I wasn't, I wasn't without some use. And that was that the woman that does Meals on Wheels in Westminster, or then did, um, would pay us 50p in the pound. So if we had a 10 pound pack of steak, she'd pay us a fiver for it. She got cheap meat to do the Meals on Wheels. So everybody, it was a win-win situation. <laughs> the police and this tracking device didn't see it that way. <laughs> and on the night in question that I, I had rung my mother and she put the phone down, Delroy just said, oh, don't worry, you can come home with me. It wasn't 
play that. He sounds like he should be at the school games, but he just talked like that because he smoked so much crack, his throat had gone. And he told me, come with me. And uh, we went to his house, which was a skip. Um, <laughs> and I do tell everyone it was a convertible skip, it had a rag top. And he and I lived in this skip for about four months in Soho in the West End. But as the weather got colder and as it got rainier and as the shops that we could visit got further and further away, I don't know why we were so easy to spot me six foot four with my accent, Delroy with his spiderweb tattoo. <laughs> um, I decided that we needed, to, we needed to upgrade. I mean, after all, I'd been to public school. I wasn't educated in that. And uh, I decided, Delroy, what do we need to do is rob a bank. <laughs> I was quite high at the time. <laughs> anyway, I made this brilliant plan. We got high as kites. We thought, right, let's go for it. It wasn't, a, you know, to be honest, the only the only training I'd had for this enterprise was trays of steak out of Sainsbury's. But I reckoned that if you could get into a bank, you could just clear out the drawers. It was a bit naive, really. <laughs> and. Um, Anyway, we got our shit together, we fine. God, got ready, hyped ourselves up, got to the bank, and it was Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't going to be deterred by that. Um, I'm glad you're with me. So that was shut, but there was a Portuguese cleaning crew going in. Now, my Portuguese is sketchy at the best of times. <laughs> I can get a couple of beers and a coffee, and that's about it. And Delroy, Delroy was a little more convincing if he just kept his face to one side <laughs> and shuffled. And um, anyway, we got into the bank. Anyway, we soon got discovered. It all kicked off, and I got arrested. Quite rightly, too. And, and Bob the Builder, having a hero, parked his Nissan Irvan on my feet, and I was nicked. <laughs> Uh, the police thought it was Christmas. They'd cleared up all the missing meat mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up in Wandsworth prison with crushed toes. My legs swelled up like kebab. Oh, God, I, I was in a very shit state, I could be said. Well, my legs got fatter and fatter, and my feet got bigger and bigger, and they even, even they decided I should go to hospital. Now, to get me from a prison where I deserve to be, to the hospital, where I needed to be, was an operation in itself. I, I couldn't get out of my cell until they cut a pair of trainers so that I could hobble like this. That's all I could do, I could hobble. It took three men to get me actually onto the loo because my legs were so, I was in a very bad way. Anyway, where they thought I was gonna run, I don't know, but they shackled me like this. Hard shackled, not handcuffs, steel shackles. And then on one end of the shackles, they, they, they shackled a, a guard on that side. And then they shuffled another guard on that side. So I'm pinioned between these two huge, you know, screws. And, um, and then they put a leather belt around my waist on a 20-foot steel chain. <laughs> I was like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> That's how society thought I should be dealt with. Well, they got me in the sort of, you know, there was a sort of, there was a wheelchair ambulance, actually, because it's the only way they could get us all in. And we got to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which has revolving doors. I don't know if you're familiar with this. <laughs> right, are you with me? Okay, so there's the three of us, shackled. <laughs> uh, 
trying to get in through the doors. And we could get in, the three of us, there was just enough room, but the guy on the chain, <laughs> it kept jamming, so we were totally... Anyway, so by now there was this hideous thing where the janitor came out, he had to undo the door, there's a crowd appearing. I'm thinking, God, I know somebody, <laughs> whatever. And I went to the ultrasound bit and I got looked at. And the, the, the hospital's got a long corridor and I'm quite tall. You'll have spotted that if you're sitting down. And I was quite tall, and there was a, a cousin of my second ex-wife, Pendy, as she turned out to be, uh, doing a Friends of the Hospital bookstore. And she saw me through the distance, and went, yoo-hoo! As I was not She collapsed, she fainted, she was so shocked. The last time she'd seen me was in a white linen suit, getting married in the, in the Algarve. And um, <laughs> it wasn't quite the, 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 what she expected. But the, the, the amazing thing was, as she collapsed, I mean, bearing in mind, I'd been living in a skip. I was now physically pinioned between these two guys, with a guy leading me on the chain. It was the first time that I saw myself as other people must see me. And at that point, the madness stopped. Thank you very much for listening. performing at the launch of Soho Stories on the 30th of June from 6pm till 8pm at Foyles Cafe on Charing Cross Road. Soho Stories is a new app filled with GPS-triggered audio stories about Soho and it's presented by Barry Cryer. He's also hosting Spark London up at the Edinburgh Festival from the 4th to the 15th of August, which includes a 24-hour storytelling marathon on the 15th, where all contributions are welcome. I recently released a conversation I recorded with Radcliffe on my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted. I would urge you to seek out this conversation. Not only is it entertaining, it's important. Because as you heard, Radcliffe has been to some places that probably none of us have been to, and he's come back from them. So find out more about that at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. As I said at the start, I'm hoping to take this show to Edinburgh in 2013. There's a donation button on the site if you want to try and help me do that. And if anyone wants to be part of my team or to offer me any advice, please contact me about it. Tragically, I have lost money during this show. But it's been a lot of fun doing it. Yay! I'd like to thank Harv, Anton, Zoe, Liz, Matt, who isn't here, George, who is, Hayley, who is also, I'm not going to do this for everyone else. <laughs> Sam, the staff at the Leicester Square Theatre, and my partner, Jen, who always ends up doing more than she should for my projects. And everyone else, including everyone in this audience tonight, who's helped me to make this happen. It's come a long way from being a casual thought in my head. Yuri at www.shavenravendesigns.co.uk made the logo and the posters. And I've got a couple of posters that you, and some badges as well that you can have for free on your way out if you want a little memento of the evening. So she's looking for your custom, Yuri is, so, and she has excellently reasonable prices, so find her if you wish. Please tell people about it. There's still going to be podcasts, probably a few more London shows in the run-up to the 2013 festival, and we'll be maintaining a social media presence. 
We have stand-up tragedy hoodies, which is too hot to wear today to demonstrate. T-shirts, which it's cool enough to wear. Mugs, badges, dog coats, and even underwear that you can buy from the website for a really expensive amount of money. <laughs> a sliver of which will come to me and the show, in fact. Because uh, I won't keep it, so I will spend it on the show. To donate and to see past and future tragedy, go to www.standuptragedy.co.uk. And we're releasing extracts from all the night, as I said, as free podcasts available through iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Wow, there you go, some music. So this is the intro for our last song from Stand Up Tragedy. It's going to be sung by the reactionaries. Hopefully it's also going to be sung by all of you. Now we've lost a few people to trains and lateness and stuff like that, and smoking. Oh, we'll hope to all sing much louder. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. Dry your eyes, it's the end of the show. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. It's time to go. It's time to go. Come on, we can do better than that. This is the last night. It's time to go. There's not even any notes, it's just kind of saying it. It's time to go. The tragedy is over. So let's all leave. Tragedy is over, so let's all leave together. This is the last time we'll hear this solo. 